Well, it is quite an honor to be here with you, NCF. Thank you for having me at your Sunday service. And um, I've been asked to preach on an issue that we have been transfixed um, in USA for all summer, and that's the calls for racial justice. Um, and I'm going to do it in a way that might seem at first like it's not related. And that's by focusing on the communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, um, depending on your tradition. But it's, this practice is one of the central practices that we do as Christians. It's what makes us set apart. No one else, uh, except for Christians, eats bread that's given with the words, this is the body of Christ. And no one else drinks wine or grape juice again, depending on your tradition, that's given with the words, this is the blood of Christ. Only Christians do that followers of Christ. Some churches have communion every week. Others have it once a month. But every church that follows Christ has communion on a regular basis. This is a key passage that teaches us about communion. So parts of it gets quoted a lot at communion, and it can seem very familiar to Christians. But sometimes familiarity obscures the meaning, especially if it's religious familiarity. You know how if you've been doing something in a rote religious way for a long time, you just do it just because it's a habit, a tradition, something holy that you're supposed to do uh, without considering what it means to the rest of your life, without being impacted by it, being transformed by it as a whole person. So we're going to take some time to unpack what communion means. And um, uh, perhaps you've been, you're like many other churches, uh, you haven't been able to get together in person to celebrate communion during the pandemic. But I think this is an opportunity for us um, when we are in this uh, strange, unfamiliar place. It's an opportunity to reflect and to reset to, and then to return um, when we can get back in person with a new heart and a new mindset um, to what this might mean. Um, so communion is very simple, outwardly speaking. It's, it's simply bread and wine. But the meaning of it goes deep. It's many layered. It requires a constant unpacking and meditating. If you let it, the communion can speak to you in new and fresh and meaningful ways into your life, no matter how long you've been taking part in the practice of communion. And so as we dive into this passage, we learn a great deal uh, not only about the Lord's table, but also about what it means for us to be church. Indeed, about the very nature of the gospel itself. If we take time to listen to what God's word is saying here, it can lead us on a journey of transformation into the heavenly community of the resurrected Jesus, the community of the new future world. So let's take a look together. First of all, this passage is talking about the rich and the poor at the table. Here's what was apparently going on at Corinth. In, in those days, churches usually didn't have their own buildings set apart for worship. Instead, the churches met in people's homes. Some of the richer Christians owned larger homes where they housed not just their families, but also their servants. They even operated businesses out of their homes. So when the church got together for worship, they gathered in these homes, specifically in the large front room called oikos, which, was, which were open to the street that could, 
and it could hold a small crowd, maybe 60 or even 70. So there were other more private rooms in the house, like bedrooms, dining room, and kitchen. Um, and here was a problem that Paul was addressing. You might have noticed that Paul was kind of upset in this passage. When the Corinthian church got together for the Lord's Supper, the master of the house was inviting some people into the dining room for a feast, but not others. Some people were in, other people were outside. It's like trying to get into a club. You know, some the, the beautiful people, well-off people, the in people, people that arrive in fancy cars, they get let in. But the ordinary riffraff get held back behind the velvet rope and the big bouncers would move in to shield the front door from the likes of you. That's, that's the same that's kind of what was happening in the, church, in the church in Corinth. Who gets invited to the table inside? It's the friends of the master of the house who were like the master of the house, the, the, the richer people who were getting, and who were the ones that were getting left out? It was the servants, the slaves, the poor. In the private dining room, uh, there was plenty of wine and there's plenty of food. But in the courtyard, there was only a simple piece of bread and a cup of wine that we normally have for our communion. So the situation wasn't, um, as some people have thought that this passage was talking about, the situation wasn't that there was chaos at the table, a free for all. And, uh, some, and uh, the problem also wasn't that this was some sort of a soup kitchen where some people were eating up all of the food um, and leaving nothing behind for, the, for others. Rather, the problem was classism. The problem was that the rich were being included and the poor were being excluded. So those who were excluded were going hungry, while those who were included were getting full and even drunk because they were eating and drinking too much. Something that we need to understand is that this was how things were normally done in the Corinthian society. When there was a festival or a special occasion, the rich folks get invited uh, uh, and, in, and into the inner circle, uh, for a meal in their homes, but the servants and the poor, they, they get the leftovers. Uh, even at the same table, the privileged guests receive better and bigger portions than the poor. Every, and, you know, everybody took this for granted because class was such a big part of how things were done. So when Christians got together to celebrate communion in Corinth, they were basically bringing in how things were done in, in the world, in the Corinthian society, into the Christian life. But this is what makes Paul really upset. He says, do you despise the church of God? And he also says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in the, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And why is he so harsh? Why is he so upset? Especially when this is how the culture in Corinth was. Because the table should be a microcosm of the kingdom of God. But instead, the Corinthians were making a microcosm of their society's unjust practices. What they were doing at the table, whether they realized it or not, did violence to the gospel. That's why Paul uses the language like, you know, uh, you're not recognizing or acknowledging or believing the body and blood of Christ. In other words, you're rejecting the very gospel of Christ itself. A lot of Christians in U.S. think that the gospel message is basically about you as an individual getting right with God. The sinner who believes that Jesus died for him 
on the cross as payment for sin receives forgiveness from God and is welcomed into God's presence as his child. And that is completely right, but only half right. The other half of the gospel message is that Jesus saves us to a new life in his new community. Jesus doesn't just save us into a new relationship with God. He saves us into a new relationship with each other in the church, the new community that he has, he's building for his new world. Reconciliation doesn't just happen with God, you see. Reconciliation happens with our neighbors. And these are people from all walks of life, people from all kinds of different places. And no matter how different our neighbors are, God, now that we are reconciled with Christ, now we are called to be in reconciled relationship with each other. And in this new community, there's no more distinctions that we used to make in the old world, like who's in, who's out, who's superior, who's inferior. And uh, these are all the kinds of things that we use to separate each other and make distinctions, like rich and poor, like Jews and Gentiles, like male or female, like this race or that race. Paul says that's the stuff of the old world that's passing away. But in the new world, we are to be on equal footing with, before God because we are all sinners saved by God's grace. And when we welcome each other, we show forth that we have received God's grace. And that's why Paul's so upset. This special privilege given to the rich might be something that's completely acceptable in the Corinthian society, but not in God's family, not in Jesus' society. That's not what salvation is about, to keep on living like how the rest of the world lives after you get forgiven, right? Salvation is about living in a new community of reconciliation, justice, and mercy. Those who are last in the world are first in Jesus' community, the least of, this, of these in the world are honored special guests in Jesus' community. Old class divisions like the ones in Corinth have no place in the kingdom of God, especially at the Lord's table, because the table declares that Jesus gave his body and his blood to tear down the walls that separate us. Secondly, um, Recognize the body at the table. Um, as a response to this situation, Paul gives two basic commands to observe at the communion table. And the first is welcome each other. Um, now, the NIV translates this as wait for each other, but the word can also mean receive or accept or welcome each other. Welcome whom? The church, the body of Christ. He says, we ought to recognize the body of Christ, the church, as we eat and drink at the communion table. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And here he gets at the heart of what it means for us to be church. The church is about welcoming each other, especially those that we use to consider strangers. The Greek word for hospitality is philozenia. It's a combination of two words, phileo, which means affection and love that you have for your family. Uh, it's where we get the word Philadelphia, 
brotherly love. Uh, and Xenos, which means stranger, foreigner, outsider. And these strangers were usually people who were alone, cut off from their families and support networks, often marginalized from the larger society. These were often refugees who had to flee violence or famine and found themselves in a strange land without family, without friends. And so one of the chief marks of being a church in Paul's mind was hospitality. Hospitality wasn't something optional, something extra we hand off to a hospitality committee in our church, uh, to the Martha Stewarts of this world who are gifted at throwing parties. Remember, hospitality means accepting as our own those who are outsiders, those who are the poor, those who are the needy, the oppressed of our societies. The church at its heart has to do with transformed relationships, equality, and common life. Christine Paul wrote a book called Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition that I highly recommend to anyone who wants to meditate further on hospitality. And she says, we, like the early church, find ourselves in a fragmented and multicultural society that longs for relationships, identity, and meaning. Our mobile and self-oriented society as characterized by disturbing levels of loneliness, alienation, and estrangement in a culture that appears at times to be overtly hostile to itself, to life itself, those who reject violence and embrace life bear powerful witness. You see what she's saying there? Hospitality is witness. It's witness to the kingdom of God, to Jesus Christ. So what is God's healing word to this world? And it, God's healing word to a broken world, such as the one that we're living in, is the church. It's his community of the future. It's a foretaste of the glory to come. Again, Christine Paul says, Hospitality becomes for the Christian community a way of being the sacrament of God's love in the world. When the church is known as those who welcome strangers, then they become a way to show God's love in this world. All right? That is the church's witness. So for the Corinthians, this meant the rich welcoming the poor and stop discriminating amongst themselves. When they come to worship as a congregation, no one is above one, uh, no, no one is above another. It doesn't matter if one person is a CEO of a multinational corporation and the other is a janitor. It doesn't matter if one person has a six or seven figure salary and the other is on government assistance. When we come to worship Jesus, we come as somebody who owes everything that we have to Jesus. Every one of us, everyone is at the same level at the foot of the cross. So Paul says, when you come together to eat, welcome each other. Don't discriminate between the rich and the poor at the communion table. And if anyone is hungry, or literally, if anyone wants to gorge themselves, eat at home. But when you come to the Lord's table, come to the Lord as one body, not some as rich and some as poor, because this is the new society that Jesus has brought into this world through his death and resurrection. This is the future. This is what we believe. So get with it. So 
um, I want you to see how revolutionary this is. Now, uh, some folks today will look at this, uh, what Paul is saying, and uh, it's going to, it's not going to be enough for them, you know, because because he's going to, they're going to say, what, what about life outside of the church? Aren't there slaves uh, in Paul's day that are still in slavery? Isn't the system still unequal and unjust? Aren't the rich still oppressing the poor? Shouldn't Paul go all the way and call Christians into a revolution? And they will say that Paul is calling for too little. They're impatient to see the change in the world. So they want policy changes, new programs, government funding, laws to be passed, and so on and so forth. And these are all good things and necessary things if we are going to build a more just city, a more just world. But if we want real change in this world, if we want to see the inequality and injustice in our world to be erased, we cannot ignore the spiritual and we cannot ignore the local. Because you can't presume to be a champion of the poor when you don't have any real relationships with a poor person. And when Paul calls rich Christians and poor Christians to welcome each other at the table, and this is what, that this is what the gospel is about, he's starting something profound here. He's calling them into a completely transformed relationship. They're called to be brothers and sisters. So Christians aren't masters and servants anymore. Once they're saved by Jesus, they're family, right? And when your world changes at this most basic level, then change flows out and changes the rest of the world. It might seem painfully slow at times. You might not even see change taking place in your lifetime. But this is how real change, a real lasting change for a more just world takes place. What Christians did in these early centuries of the church laid the groundwork for what came later. And I think it's here, it's very important to set the record straight about something that there's a lot of confusion about these days. Social justice is squarely in the heart of Christianity. It's Clear when you do even a cursory study of church history, in the early church, Christians would go out to collect from trash heaps, take in and raise babies that had been left out to die in the open. Christian missionaries to the Caribbeans in the early days of the Western expansion into the Americas fought against the inhuman treatments of the native Caribbeans by the European conquistadors and worked to pass into law the doctrine of universal human rights. Abolitionists and civil rights movements were led by Christians at the forefront. And they filled these movements with Christian vision, theology, and vocabulary of faith. Don't forget, Christian social justice is intimately tied to Christian spirituality and theology and practice. These world-shaping efforts begin at the table where the rich and poor and those who are divided in all kinds of different ways welcome each other with the people who are right in front of you within the little church community that you are a part of. I think one of the most important things for you to do as Christian today is don't separate social justice from the Christian gospel. Now, I want to say this happens at both the activist left and on the conservative right. The conservative Christians say you can't get involved in social justice because it's secular humanism. We're just supposed to preach the gospel. But 
<laughs> that that cannot be right because at the table you see that the social justice is taking place now the progressives get busy with social justice activism because intuitively they know that god wants his people to act justly but sometimes what they fail to do is they fail to connect their faith and theology to social justice practices so you need to protest and you need to demand a just government policy and just government programs but in god's kingdom you must also deal with your own heart and with your personal relationships with god and with your church and with uh, those who are others in your city because without this inner reality there won't be outward change not really not in a lasting way you're just moving furniture around on the titanic if you want to see real change in the world, then you need to have real change in your relationship with God and with others. This is the heart of any ministry or any community transformation efforts or anything else good that we might try to do in the world. We come face to face with this basic gospel truth at the communion table. Back in Paul's day, it was impossible not to deal with people of different classes because they didn't have cars and trains and interstate highways. And so the rich and poor lived next to each other in the same neighborhoods, even in the same households. But these days, it's possible to live in completely different neighborhoods. Or even if you live in the same neighborhood, you don't have to deal with people that you don't want to deal with because you just drive in and out of your garage and you never have to deal with other people but not like you. So one of the implications of the table has to be to ask, how is it that we live in such segregated cities? How did ghettos and neighborhoods of highly concentrated generational poverty divided among, along racial lines come to be? And how can we as God's people participate in building cities that are more, a little more just, a little more equitable? See, the, the, the table pronounces that prophetic word on the world and the society that we live in. Different Christians have heeded this call and they got involved in community associations and neighborhood organizing because they started to ask these kinds of questions. We as church cannot just take for granted the way that we do life in our society in our very highly segregated, highly individualistic, highly consumeristic society. Uh, your communion table speaks against that, you see, just as Paul spoke against the Corinthian Christians and their practices. Um, I, I think um, I, I'm going to just kind of point you in the direction of some of the things that I hope that you would um, uh, be com become more educated in. Um, just last week, Richard Rothstein, who um, was, is the author of uh, The Color of Law, uh, it's a book about segregation uh, and how segregation came to be in the United States. He wrote an op-ed in New York Times called The Black Lives Next Door. And he says, and I think he's right, uh, that residential desegregation is the final frontier of racial justice. Because how... Um, education is unequal, how um, investments are unequal into different neighborhoods, how um, police force uh, treats people unequally 
according to neighborhoods. This is all very much tied into residential segregation. And, and this is how we live our lives. Um, and there, sometimes we don't question it, but the table of the Lord questions this. And churches have also been profoundly shaped by how this world has been structured. You usually have the same kinds of folks, same as you in the same, in the same church. And so we don't have to deal with this command of Paul at the table. We never, we kind of sidestep it because, well, this is how the rest of the world works. And, uh, and so we need to ask the question of who are we, who is absent? Who are the people that are absent when we are taking communion? And how can we better reflect the community of the gospel? So are we becoming more like this beloved community that we are going to find in heaven? And uh, it, we have still have a long way to go. And, and uh, I think the church is being called to not give up, but to commit ourselves to that journey and it's kind of sometimes going to be a hard journey, long journey, and uh, uh, we. But this is a journey that we are being called to. I think um, the, the the reason that we don't uh, struggle with this is because we approach church as consumers, and we don't grow into hospitality and reconciliation when we are consumers because the church exists to meet your spiritual needs, like Amazon exists to meet your need for material stuff. Not a community of discipleship where you belong to, where you can learn to grow and extending true hospitality to the stranger. I think we can do better. I think we can do redo the ways that we meet together. I think that we, uh, we can uh, reorganize for the sake of existing the welcome, uh, welcoming the outsider, the poor, the lonely, uh, and bring people together around the uh, common table. And this table that we have as a church community where strangers are being welcomed and where we truly extend love and, uh, and, uh, of, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to others, to each other, it should flow out to our own private dinner tables at our homes where we are, as families are also extending hospitality to those who are, who are in need of a warm table. That's what Paul means for you to recognize the body of Christ, the new society that Jesus created by giving his body and his blood. Recognize that though the church is being built from all sorts of different and diverse groups of people, and they come from all kinds of walks and stations in life, when we come together at the table, we are one before the Lord because of what Jesus has done. That's how social justice flows out into our lives and into the ways that we live because we've been called to live differently. Now that we are church, we are, not, we are not called to just make peace with whatever the world offers, but rather we are called to witness and live out of the energy of the future kingdom to come. Thirdly, remember the Lord at the table. The second command that Paul gives is remember the Lord. By eating and drinking at the table, we proclaim the, the Lord's death until it comes. And of course, we absolutely need this. We can't be reconciled to each other if we don't receive God's grace in Christ. Why is it that we're okay when there's inequality 
And why do we make excuses and rationalize when there is injustice in our world and we even deny it? Um, why do we stay locked and fight for years and years? It's because we are on, we somehow found ways to sidestep humbling ourselves because of our pride, because of our fear. You know, when you believe the gospel, you realize you're the servant who's been forgiven millions by the king. And, and if you get um, demanding and unforgiving about a few bucks that your fellow servant owes you, then you're trifling, as the kids say. <laughs> In that story, the king was furious. Why wouldn't he be? It just showed that the servants didn't appreciate the mercy of the king at all. But when you know that God has been merciful to you beyond your wildest imagination, your world ought to get turned upside down. You were the enemy that God loved by laying his life down. You were the stranger for whom Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that you could be welcomed into God's family. So when you come to the table, you realize that the center of the universe is the amazing love of God for you, a sinner. And that's the dynamo that works, that reorders you in your heart and how you see the world, and it starts to reorder your, your church. It starts to reorder your relationships within your neighborhood, your, your city, into the world. The gospel has the power to change us and our world. It must, if it's truly the gospel. That's what will change you, and this will set you free from your consumerism, um, a mindset that Ex everything exists for you, even Jesus, and this will end up enslaving you and to, to your own selfish desires. It will break your, this is, this good news is what would break your heart with the love of God, the costly grace of Christ, and send you outward into the world as an agent of God's reconciliation. This is what would bring, uh, this is what will bring in reconciliation into your relationships, your re marriage, your family, your neighborhood, your school, your work, so when you come to communion, remember the Lord who loved you and loved the world and gave his body and his blood. You're eating and drinking a little piece of the coming world of righteousness, holiness, and justice. And it becomes a seed that grows and flowers into real transformation of our communities. I think it was Gandhi who said, be the change that you want to see in the world. That's the possibility that opens up at the communion table. Let's receive that possibility. Let's ponder that possibility and what it might mean in our relationships, in our communities. And let's practice that possibility as the Lord leads us as far as is possible. Do that in faith until Jesus brings his new heaven and new earth where he will wipe away all of our fears, all of our tears, all of the sorrows, all of the injustices in this world and welcome us into his arms forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the host who welcomes everyone who are, have been lost to your table. When we were strangers, you welcomed us in. When we were your enemies, you laid down your body and your blood to reconcile us so that we could be adopted. 
Lord, uh, when we have this news, we realize that we cannot remain the same. We cannot keep on living as the rest of the world does. And we realize that we need to work for justice in, in, our, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, because of the blood of Christ. And so I pray in this time when there is um, so much upheaval and there's so much confusion about what it means for us to be Christians in this, in this society. I pray that uh, you would give us a, a vision of the heavenly community and may we love that and commit ourselves to that and work for true justice to reign here on earth as it is in heaven. So give us the courage to do that, reorder our imaginations and uh, show us the path to move forward into, give us real hope and real courage and uh, may we be open to you reordering our lives and, uh, and the way that we do our faith, the way that we live in this world. So Lord, um, give us your spirit. Bless us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for having me.